the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, starting with verse 11. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, A scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows toward my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark, because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. The word of the Lord. From the first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, starting with verse 12. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of our Lord. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on its shoulders, on his shoulders, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So this morning, um, many of you know that we follow a series of readings in um, the lectionary, which is a uh, really a calendar of readings for the church. And the church has historically followed this pattern to where 
Over three years, we cover pretty much most of the Bible. So we read most of the Bible while we're here together. And in fact, if you follow it in churches that are really strict about it, you will hear actually every word of the Bible proclaimed at some point in the service over the course of three years. Um, One of the challenges with that and one of the blessings with that is that I don't get to come in and pick and choose my favorite parts of the Bible and read them every Sunday. Now, I loved our epistle text today, the Apostle Paul. I love our gospel text where Jesus goes after the lost one. Today, I kind of wanted to lop off the Jeremiah text about um, God destroying Israel to the point where they were desolate and there was no redemption whatsoever. Could have done without that one this morning. (laughs) But I I have a, there's a preacher who I have listened to who says that the beautiful thing about the lectionary, it it is free from the constraint of the preacher's choice. I love thinking about it that way, that uh, I had a pastor growing up. It wasn't my pastor, but it was part of the school that I went to. And, and we knew every year in chapel services that there were just a few passages of scripture that were gonna kind of be recycled through the chapel each year. We're gonna have a, one sermon on the power of your words and speaking. We're gonna have one sermon on the joy of the Lord. And that might've been it, but no, <laughs> I had the same things over and over again. So I am thankful for the challenge of uh, reaching these texts and realizing these are the word of God too. These difficult ones, these hard ones are also the word of the Lord. And so we say, this is the word of the Lord. And we respond, uh, thanks be to God <laughs> because of how challenging some of these are. Um, it's easy at sometimes to look at certain verses of the Old Testament and to just paint God as mean, as punitive, as angry. In fact, passages like our Old Testament text today, I have heard from some that this is what keeps them from the Christian faith passages like this. They'll say, we talk about God as a God of love all the time, but then we read the Bible and we see God threatening to severely punish a group of people, his people. How is that possible? So we hear the words of the prophets, which are intentionally harsh, and we think that must be who God really is. The kindness is just a show, but God is really mean and vindictive. And I think part of the reason for that is that's what we've experienced a lot in our lives from people. People have an agenda They have a darker side. When they're kind to us, that that's just their external appearance. But there's something deeper that's harsh. So we write God off. Now, we can't dive deeply into the theological concepts of the wrath of God today. Uh, We can't go through that. But there are a couple things that I think are important for us to look at and to think about when we read passages like this. Notice that most of the time when God's wrath like this is described in Scripture— it is seen as a consequence of the actions of people, that people have kind of moved in a certain direction that is destructive. And this is attributed to God, but it is actually the outgrowth of their direct actions in their lives. God has created a good world. God has a design that is good and right and perfect for his people. And we see in this passage, Israel has gone against that. When humanity goes against the creator's design and love and purpose and blessing for the world, the result is not good. And it always leads to unraveling. This week I heard it described as uncreation. It leads to destruction. But words of judgment are hard for us to hear. And sometimes in the church, maybe you grew up in the church and we built this construct where we think of the, in the Old Testament, God was mean 
and vengeful and vindictive, but then Jesus came along and he was compassionate and merciful. And so it's just easier to separate. The Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore. And so we're only gonna embrace the New Testament because otherwise we have to deal with all the messy bits, right? But this ignores the fact that God is also amazingly loving in the Old Testament. What's that about? But then God is also strong and is challenging, and there's even judgment and harshness even in the New Testament. So what do we do with that? In fact, something like this, this separation of Old Testament, New Testament, and trying to kind of lop off the Old Testament was condemned as one of the church's first heresies ever. One of the first guys who was ever condemned of heresy was a guy named Marcion. And he came along and he basically wanted to cut off the Old Testament altogether, said that the God of the Old Testament was like this lesser God, or this God who wasn't as powerful, and then the God of the New Testament came along and took over the God of the Old Testament. That's what Marcion said. And the church said, no, I can't do that. <laughs> that doesn't fit. That doesn't work together. But it's important to remember that Jesus considered himself the fulfillment of the story of Israel, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That was his story. This story of the prophet Jeremiah is the story that Jesus lived into. Israel Israel's God was his God, Jesus' God, and he was living out the kingdom as the ultimate answer to the problem of human rebellion that we see painted in Jeremiah. And also, the God of the Old Testament was quite merciful, especially when we see the context of the ancient world where um, so much violence was happening. There was so much violent language, and tribes were violent against each other, and that was the kind of language they used for their gods. In contrast to that, Yahweh is consistent and he's loving and he doesn't give up on his people. But what these passages do is they help us to confront the reality of sin. Sin is important to talk about. Um, it's not something we can just leave alone because when left to our own devices, we do move away from God. It's what we do. We choose our own path. We don't choose what's best. You hear us in the language that we use around here is we choose counterfeits. We choose things that are destructive and aren't helpful and aren't restorative. We choose counterfeits to God's best. If I preached this sermon 10 years ago, I might say, you know, people don't talk about sin anymore. <laughs> we need to talk more about sin, right? Everything's acceptable today and everything's permissible. We don't talk about sin, but I don't think that's really true in our culture anymore. I think we talk about sin a lot. We are hyper aware of what other people are doing wrong. <laughs> and we talk about it a lot, don't we? We're constantly thinking about what a shame it is that this person or this group or this politician or this celebrity has done this particular thing. So we're quick to point out who's been offended, who's been hurt, who's been ignorant. And if you've noticed in our culture, there are conservative sins and there are liberal sins. I debated back and forth whether to talk about these explicitly today or not, so I'm just gonna go there, right? So if you dishonor the flag of the United States or um, talk about the country in a certain way, that's a conservative sin, isn't it, today? If you use language that isn't politically correct in a particular way, if you treat the environment in a particular way, if you abuse the environment, that's considered a liberal sin, isn't it? We're really quick to call each other out. And our first response is always to shame the other, isn't it? 
to talk about how bad they are, if we talk about how bad and how awful they are as people and at the core of who they are, then that's really what's gonna get people to change. So we talk about sin a lot now. There's almost a fundamentalism in our culture. There's a longing for sin, an expression of sin, because there's a longing for justice, for things to be made right. And that longing for justice is good. Even if our idea is misplaced, our longing that things would be right, that things would be put back together is good longing. I think one of the reasons why this has resurfaced, why we have had this culture is we do, we recognize the world is not right as it is, that it needs restoring. And justice can only happen when there's judgment. Judgment is often seen as a dirty word that we don't talk about, but judgment is just this idea of shining a light on something so that it can be healed and it can be restored. Judgment is calling something out for what it is so that it can be restored. And we want that and we should want that. That's what's happening here in Jeremiah. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is revealing what is going on in the collective heart of Israel. This is what's happening. Let's back up a minute and look at the context of this passage. So the king at the beginning of the time of Jeremiah was named Manasseh, and he was literally the worst king Israel has ever had. And he ruled for 55 years. So for those of you who are just like waiting for the next election to happen so that you can change, like we do it four years at a time here. This is 55 years of this guy who was awful. It was a dark time. And he had this role as king, which in Israel wasn't just a political role. We think about political roles and spiritual roles as separate in our country, but it was a spiritual role. He was to rule on behalf of Yahweh. But this guy, Manasseh, what he did is he encouraged pagan worship so he brought in all of these false gods and everything into the nation of Israel. And then he, a lot of the worship of these pagan gods involved entire villages in sexual orgies on a regular basis. So that's this king in Israel, and that's what he's promoting at this time. There were cult prostitutes everywhere. There were um, shrines placed throughout the countryside, which was a no-no for Israel. He brought in wizards and sorcerers. He burned his own son as part of a pagan sacrifice of witchcraft to the god Moloch. Not a good dude, right? Like this was rough. We're talking like Game of Thrones stuff here, okay? This isn't supposed to be in the Bible, but it is. But the worst of all is he took the temple of Israel this place that was designed to be the place where heaven and earth meet, God's house. And he put in God's house magicians and prostitutes, idols shaped like beasts and monsters. He deified greed and lust and then murdered children as part of sacrifice. In other words, we think about this. Why did Israel turn to false gods? I think sometimes when I read about idol worship in the Old Testament, I go, ah, oh, that's not a problem anymore. We're not putting up statues, gold statues, and bowing down and worshiping to them on a regular basis. But think about what these gods represented. The need for violence was one of them. The need to take out violence on someone or something. The objectification of others for sex. That was another need. And then the need to find a way to control how things were produced and how successful we are. That was the fertility gods, that the crops would grow. If I just give this sacrifice, the crops will go. So we have violence, we have objectification for sex, 
And then we have this need to control production and just figure out how I can make more success and more money. So we don't struggle with any of that stuff today, right? 55 years of this and faith among most people was gone. There were a few older people who remembered some of the prophet's words, but most people weren't faithful to Yahweh. Um, The people who were were living in huddled seclusion. So Jeremiah describes it as this, the earth was waste and void. When we rebel against God, we go our own way, we are unraveling God's creative purposes. We are moving in a counter-creation direction. And the result of that is that things are without purpose. They're empty, they're void. In fact, that's the description of how the world was before God created, right? It says that it was dark and void. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Anything that we chase in this life that does not find its home in faith, hope, and love in the one true God is destined for emptiness. So then Manasseh died. A guy named Amon took over his son. Things didn't change. So the people got really upset, really frustrated with the king. So the people rose up and they killed Amon. And all of a sudden, the next person in line is Amon's eight-year-old son, Josiah, who is on the throne. He's the king. So you have the worst kings in all of Israel that are happening here. And then all of a sudden, it's an eight-year-old who takes the throne. Now, I have a six-year-old. And I don't think that another two years would give her what she needs to govern an empire, okay? I just, I mean, she's bright, she's brilliant, but I don't think that would happen. But somehow, in the way that only God does, God uses the weakness of a child to bring new life into the land. God uses Israel in their weakness, not in their strength. Eugene Peterson says that the rule of Josiah and Manasseh or excuse me, the rule of Manasseh and Amon are kind of like an asphalt parking lot, okay? So the the green is destroyed, all of the grass is destroyed in order to make a large, plain monstrosity. That's kind of like a description of Manasseh and Amon. They paved over all the green. They created something utilitarian, and that's all it was. But over time, if you've seen even out here in our parking lots, you can't hold back the green, can you? There's cracks that develop. God breaks through the cracks. Grass breaks through the cracks of the parking lot. God breaks through the asphalt in the world. The sacred was not gone in Israel. The sacred was just invisible, but it can't be stamped out. So where does Josiah, this eight-year-old king, begin? Well, he starts by cleaning out the temple. We're gonna start with the place of worship. And the belief was, if you can begin at the place of worship, everything will begin to move out. If you can reorient worship, desire, and love towards things that are right, towards the one true God, it will change everything. So what they do is they start cleaning out stuff. They go into the temple and they start cleaning out the, uh, the idols. They do kind of a spring cleaning. Um, there's this great story that I love of uh, um, our, our sending church in Tulsa. They recently bought a new building and it's this, giant building. I don't even think they realized how big this building was going to be when they got in there and, and how much upkeep and all that stuff. And they just started kind of cleaning stuff out and setting things up. And, and it was an assembly of God church that had, um, for a long time, they'd been a traditional congregation. And then in the past couple, their generation or so, they had moved more to like taking the pews out and putting in uh, regular seats. They had done, you know, uh, projectors and smoke machines and, you know, all the things that you kind of do. And, and so, 
what they were doing is they were cleaning out this church building and they found in a closet this giant, beautiful stained glass window that had been stuck behind just a bunch of stuff and kind of set aside. And it was such a gem for, for our, the sending church of ours, right? And, and they're going, oh my gosh, we pulled this out. So I kind of had this picture and we're getting ready to do a spring cleaning in here and do some work and all that kind of stuff. But you know how it goes in your house that you find things that you need to throw away. We don't use this anymore. But then you find things that you go, I forgot we had this. What a treasure this is. So they're cleaning out the temple and they find a treasure. The priest Hilkiah found an old book and it was the book of Deuteronomy. So it's been 55 years of nobody serving God or very few people serving God. And there's been this awful oppression. They completely forgotten their story. And then they're cleaning out the temple one day and they find the book of Deuteronomy, which tells them how to worship and how to love God. Think about Josiah for a minute. This eight-year-old king, now I don't know if he's eight-year-old exactly at this time, but he has no plan. He has no fatherly example or kingly example. He has no blueprint about what Israel's supposed to do. All he was ever taught is from evil people. And now he has this book that teaches him right from wrong. So Josiah immediately put everything into action. He wipes out the false gods. He removes the temple prostitutes and magicians. And in this context, Jeremiah says, we got to tear it all down. We have to break it down to the studs. Jeremiah says in our passage, a hot wind is coming. But he clarifies it by saying, in case you think that this hot wind is coming just to winnow down to the faithful people or to cleanse us, no, it's going to destroy everything. (laughs) No redemption in this whatsoever is what he's saying. And that's often the case in our lives. We may not see ourselves putting up statues of pagan gods or having orgies in villages or whatever, but left to our own devices, we do choose counterfeit worship. We do pursue things that are false. And God's love often requires the complete breaking down of these things, not just adding or tweaking a little bit here or there. Following in the way of Jesus requires full trust and full surrender. We must allow God to use us through our weakness to say, God, I have nothing on my own, but I trust that you can make something beautiful out of my life. Israel had an eight-year-old king with no good moral example. And in their weakness, God began to spring up new life. And God will never give up on us. Something I want us to hear today. No matter how dark things get in our world or in our life, our God doesn't do that. He doesn't run away from us. His word is always there speaking and rebuilding. So I think it's important when we read these Old Testament texts to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And that seems a little bit like strange to us sometimes because we go, well, with a a book, you're supposed to start from the beginning (laughs) and go all the way through. And Jesus is, you know, kind of in the middle and the back half of it, right? But I actually think that when we read the Old Testament, we have to read it in light of how God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament shows us who human beings were created to be. And we see the story that human beings on our own are not capable of faithfulness to God. We're not able to be fully image bearers. And yet God did not give up on us. There is one who is faithful, 
one who is the true image and reflection of God. And our hope is not in ourselves. It's not that there's some moral example and now we can kind of do it right. It's the one who was faithful, who went before us. So this is what Paul says in our Timothy text. Paul himself was a blasphemer, he says. He persecuted Christians. He was violent. And in this passage, Paul says he was the chief sinner, which is a title. He gives himself a title. I'm the number one sinner of all of you, the king of sinners. But he says God was merciful. I love this. Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Notice that God is the subject. God is the one who has done the action. He doesn't recruit Paul because Paul has such great potential. Sometimes how we think of our lives. Maybe if I do good enough, God will want to use me. No, he broke Paul down. He chose him in his weakness, not in his strength. That's who our God is, the one who is merciful. God's heart has always been to bless the world. And I love in the last verse how Paul speaks about God's patience. And he's not just talking about patience with Paul in the sense that he's waiting for Paul to straighten up. He's not going, come on, Paul, I guess I'm gonna have to just wait for you. Like, I'm gonna have to be patient with you. No, God is committed to the process of forming and shaping our lives. And I think, I believe in miracles. I believe God does instant things. God sometimes changes our trajectory. He actually did that with Paul in a miraculous kind of way. But God is committed to the process of our lives of us walking through it and walking it out. I don't know about you, but I often feel like my entire life is God teaching me the same lesson over and over again. I wish it was new lessons. <laughs> I wish I would graduate from one and then move on and God would say, you conquered that. Now you're gonna learn this, some of that maybe. But often it is God's patience reminding me my identity over and over and over again. When Paul reflects on the patience of God, he then turns to praise. I almost get the sense that Paul is mid-sentence and he stops abruptly. And then he says, ah, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. We see this clearly in our gospel text. When Jesus gets in trouble for eating with tax collectors and sinners, he's eating with the wrong kind of people, the people who rabbis aren't supposed to be seen with. And Jesus' opponents are spending so much of their time trying to figure out which political camp Jesus belongs in. That's kind of the subtext of the gospels that when people are asking him questions, they're trying to figure out, okay, does he fit with this group or does he fit with this group? He doesn't seem to fit neatly into all of them because there were all kinds of political groups at the time because Israel was ruled by Rome. And so there's all these groups going, hey, we're gonna be free from Rome if we just do this thing or we just do that thing. There's this deep question in Israel, has God given up on us? Is God still faithful? Have we blown it so badly as a people that God just won't step in anymore? 
Is he expecting something from us? And there's all these groups that have a different answer to that question. So the onlookers are looking at Jesus and going, is he part of the zealot group? That's one political group. They were like violent revolutionaries trying to overthrow Rome. Is he part of that group? Is he trying to violently step up and overthrow Rome by any means necessary? Is he a Pharisee hiding, holding on to a strict interpretation of the law and telling us who's in and who's out? Is that who Jesus is? Is he a Sadducee? Basically, he's trying to keep peace with Rome and make sure that we have nice peace deals with Rome so that they can let us do what we do. He doesn't seem to fit any of those groups. And when Jesus pulls a group around him, he starts to develop a community around him, kind of the prototype of the church that is to come. They are a mishmash of people. All these people who had been rejected by all the other groups. They don't follow the law good enough. They didn't have enough influence or status, and they're certainly not valued by Rome. These are the people surrounding Jesus. So what's wrong with tax collectors? Well, their job was to collect taxes for Herod and for Rome, or maybe for both. So no one liked them. No one liked tax collectors. They made their living off the empire that was oppressing Israel. So the people of Israel are not happy with them. The other thing is they came in regular contact with Gentiles. So some of them thought that made them unclean. And then he says they're with sinners. Sinners is like a general category. They were considered hopelessly irreligious. They didn't care enough about the law or about God. And it's important that we're clear here. Jesus is not giving a rubber stamp of the behavior of these groups of people, tax collectors and sinners. No, he's actually calling them to repentance through how he's living. The lost sheep and then the story of the lost coin that we didn't read this morning, both of those, the lost sheep and the lost coin, are found. Repentance is part of it. It's necessary. But Jesus and the teachers of the law have a different opinion on what repentance means. For the teachers of the law, repentance meant if they just straighten up and they accept our interpretation of the law, that's repentance. We'll consider them repenting. But for Jesus, all repentance means is acknowledging weakness, taking the first step to follow him. That's all it means. When Jesus describes the finding of the one sheep, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. N.T. Wright says that we should imagine Jesus saying that last phrase when he says, um, the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, that Jesus is like smiling and kind of asking with a question mark who don't need to repent because the Pharisees need to repent, right? The teachers of the law need to repent. Jesus is saying that these teachers of the law need to repent for the ways they've created walls around God's family. They've not taken their calling to bless the world seriously. Jesus is reminding Israel who they were called to be in the first place. People who love and embrace those who are lost because that's who Jesus is. That's who God is. But think for a second about how counterintuitive that is. If you have a hundred sheep, that's your job. You're a shepherd, you take care of these sheep and one of them wanders away. Does it make logical sense to leave those 99 and go chase after the one? Leave them unattended? No, it doesn't make logical sense. 
We need to protect the 99. We need to mitigate our losses here and figure out, oh, we lost one, that's a bummer, but we need to stay with the 99. It shows how extravagant the love of God really is, that he risks everything and he goes after the one who is lost just because they are lost. Our God is the one of extravagant risk. And notice that the one who is chased after is not any better in any way than the 99. It's not that God goes after the one because that one has the best coat and I miss that the coat that, you know, that that one will have. Or that's the one who comes close to me and nuzzles the knee of the shepherd. So I'm gonna go chase after that one. No, why does the shepherd go after the lost sheep? Simply because they're lost. The only qualification is disqualification. (laughs) And when that sheep and that coin are found, there's a party. Our party on earth, Jesus is saying, we're partying on earth with tax collectors and sinners. And that is reflective of the party that's going on in heaven. And we've talked about this before, but when the scriptures talk about heaven, they're describing God's space, the space where God's will is fully done. And when the scriptures talk about earth, they're speaking of our space, the space where we inhabit, right? But God's desire has always been from the beginning for heaven and earth to come together. And so we see that springing up all around us, signs of new life, green busting through asphalt, every act of faith in our world, every act of hope in our world, every act of love reveals God's space to us in some way. It reveals heaven to us. I believe when we experience the sacraments, We believe something different is happening. There's a kind of sacred ground that's happening here and we can't fully explain it, but it's heaven and earth coming together. It's God's space stepping into our space. And there will come a day, we believe, when heaven and earth will come together fully. So that's why we pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that we would see God's will and God's kingdom fully in our midst. So what do we do until that day? We look for those signs and we celebrate them. We party about those signs. God is moving, God is at work, God is extravagant, and God is celebrating when people come into his kingdom. So to be in tune with God's reality is to party. God is the extravagant one who welcomes us with a party not waiting for us to get our act together, not waiting for us to adopt a certain form of behavior, not waiting for us to figure out whether we really believe everything in the creed or not. Our God invites us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and celebrates us with his love. So we close here. Part of the Christian life is coming to grips with the depths of our brokenness. It's not a part of the story we can just lop off. It's coming to grips with the places where we've missed the mark, that we are dependent creatures. We were created dependent creatures. And without God, we move towards desolation. We move towards uncreation. C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I think about in C.S. Lewis wrote in a uh, British context where you don't want to be too overly emotional or desire too many things. Be pretty proper, right? Pretty restrained. And so he says, like, our Lord finds our desires not too strong. It's not that he's afraid that we're going to be too strong in our desires, but actually too weak. 
Because we're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, Lewis said. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like Israel, we worship the gods of production and control, of violence and vengeance, revenge, and of sex. These things are silly. (laughs) And that's why Jeremiah says, we're stupid. He says that about Israel. It's the Bible, it's not me. And yet with Israel, God never gives up. He chooses them and he chooses us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and calls us to be part of his rebuilding work. Our God never gives up. Hear that today. God never gives up on you. God never gives up on the person who you work with. God never gives up on the person you go to school with, on your neighbor. God never gives up. Each of us may call ourselves the chief of sinners someday. And that is exactly who God chooses. Not because of anything that we've done, but simply because we're lost. And I think that raises the question for us as a church. Who are we partying with? Are we living the kinds of life that would beg the question, why do they hang out with them? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Who are those in society who God has given up on? Who are those people who've been rejected, who've been left by the side of the road? How might we be there? In what ways might God be calling us to those places? My prayer today is may we be a party-throwing people, celebrating people, that our doors will always be wide open and that we'll always be celebrating because we were once lost and we've been found. Amen.